Welcome to Securing America with me, Frank Efty, the program that's a kind of owner's manual for protecting the country we love against all enemies, foreign and domestic, to the glory of God and his kingdom. We are going to be doing a deep dive on a number of these challenges uh, with one of our favorite guests. His name is Robert Charles. I'll give you a proper introduction to him in a moment, but I want to set up this conversation with the Gaffney Brief. We are in the midst, it appears, of a sizable and growing conflict between the Biden regime on the one hand and much of the rest of the country on the other. Uh, states, um, the Congress, and I think increasingly the American people are all now uh, more or less disaffected from what they're seeing from the president and his team, if not, and properly, feeling betrayed by them. What this portends in terms of where we go from here is very much to be determined. I think we're all hoping that there is a free and fair election this fall, that there is an opportunity as a result for there to be a significant course correction in the direction of our country. But there's a lot of apprehension about whether in fact that will be the case or not. And failing that, where the country might find itself in terms of those who seek to compound the internal divisions within this nation, uh, I believe not simply to their own benefit, but very much to the benefit of our enemies foreign. This is the question that we will be exploring in part with our first guest. His name is Robert Charles. As I mentioned, he is a former Assistant Secretary of State, among many other incarnations of government service as a Naval Intelligence Officer, as a counsel for congressional matters uh, in the White House of Ronald Reagan and George H.W. Bush, as well as five years spent in oversight roles on the professional staff of the House of Representatives. Uh, if that were not enough, he has also served in the judicial branch as a clerk in the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. He's the author of Eagles and Evergreen, and these days is, uh, in addition to a principal of the Charles Group, a spokesman for a wonderful organization of which I'm proud to be a member, the Association of Mature American Citizens. Bobby, I could go on and on, but I think we have to leave a little time to have an actual conversation with you. Thank you for giving us actually three segments today to do that. We're very glad to have you with us, sir. Welcome back. Well, we're always delighted to have you, Bobby. Let me start by picking up on something that you wrote about, I believe, at amac.us, where people can follow your writings uh, with uh, that organization. Um, it really was a very thoughtful and rather lengthy exercise in examining the sentiment of the American people. I just sort of alluded to, I think, the bottom line of it. But uh, you go through uh, one, uh, well, grievance, I guess you might say, after another. Uh, sort of summarize the nature of the piece and, and why it is that you believe that is uh, a sentiment that is contributing to the popularity of the former president of the United States in this election cycle, uh, a candidate, Donald Trump. So two quick thoughts on that, Frank. Thank you. Uh, one is that it really was a distillation of what many people, I think, in their own heart of hearts, without even hearing from you or me, uh, already know and feel. And the second is a, a kind of visually to remind people that if you're looking at a silhouette, um, let's say you're looking at a white silhouette against a black backdrop, uh, the whiter the silhouette gets, this, this, the stronger and tighter it looks, but also the darker the backdrop is the brighter it looks. So what we're experiencing right now is something that I don't think you or I in our lifetimes have witnessed before. It's a combination of, uh, and I think the, the, it's a disconnection of the federal government, in particular this White House and those that are loyal to it, from the average American. And it leaves the average American feeling dismayed, 
uh, and being a feeling betrayed uh, by the government that they feel that they have always grown up with, the one that their parents and their grandparents and they in younger years trusted. So what has this government done that has led to that extraordinary um, disaffection, as you describe it, with 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 the people in particular who are who are in the positions of power? They have betrayed us on both domestic and national security, uh, your bailiwick, but what does that mean? It means that we have unsafe streets, we have our children being subject to not only uh, uh, criminal activity on a daily basis and the onslaught of major drugs that are killing them at a, at a much higher rate than it, that by, by a factor of 10 than any time in American history, but they've also been in some ways subject to new insecurity in the schools, in the public schools, in other locations, because the cultural uh, disarray that has been sown, the chaos that has been sown. And I know you would argue, and I think I probably would concur with you, that it is an intentional sowing of disaffection for everything from faith uh, to free speech. Those are truly national security questions when you come home. But then you look abroad and you look, uh, before you get abroad, you look at the border. Uh, Frank, we are looking at, at, again, one of the biggest betrayals in American history. You, you are having, uh, you are having a, a waving over that border of people that range from terrorists uh, to uh, to drug traffickers with no with no compunction whatsoever from this president or any of those around him or the leadership of the Senate uh, Democrat uh, caucus. And finally, you have the real threats, Frank, that, that stand abroad. Uh, our, our military has been run down, demoralized, recruiting and retention are at all time lows. I have pieces coming out next week at AMAC on that. And you have a you have adversaries that are openly leaning in, kind of like the wolves in Jack London's Call of the Wild. They're circling, they see opportunity, China, Iran, Venezuela, North Korea, all of their sort of surrogate uh, allies, they're all looking at the United States as if we are prey. We need to stop, we need to shake ourselves loose and you know that's what November will be for. I hope and pray we keep a peaceful world uh, such as it is between now and uh, November, and then between November and January, because we are in very deep, treacherous waters right now. I, I wanted to pick up on the border issue specifically with you, Bobby, because I think in a way, it it is now become uh, the preeminent issue, as we saw in New Hampshire, for example. Uh, because in a way it, it seems to sort of, um, reflect most of the other frustrations that you were just enumerating, yeah. uh, the loss of trust in your government, lying yeah. about what's going on by your government, um, obvious security problems being facilitated and compounded by your government and so on. Um, it, we have had a number of aspects of this that uh, have been a focus of our conversations here at Securing America for some time uh, with you and, and many others, of course. Um, Bobby, let me just focus in on one that uh, I'm, I'm particularly alarmed about. I think you know. Uh, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about it and then we'll come back after a short break. But um, to set it up, uh, 10 former senior FBI executives wrote a letter, very strong, very, I think, uh, compelling letter to leaders of the Congress on the 17th of January. Uh, in it, they made absolutely clear that in their professional judgment, we are being invaded. And not just by millions of people, you know, coming here without our permission, but specifically by large numbers, they say divisions worth, of military age young men, unaccompanied, hailing from places like China and Russia and various, I call them Sharia supremacist nations, jihadist nations, if you will, terrorist nations. Bobby, we want to talk about the implications of all of that on the other side of this break. Um, and I so appreciate your time for doing so. We'll be right back.
This is Frank Afney with the Secure Freedom Minute. Iran-controlled jihadists have just killed and injured 30 American troops based in Jordan. This attack is but the latest in the escalating violence engineered by Tehran and carried out by its proxies to provide minimal plausible deniability for the mullahs and their friends and, yes, agents inside the Biden administration. So when President Biden says, we'll hold the perpetrators accountable and respond in a time and manner of our choosing, what he means is, we will continue to pretend Iran is not responsible and mete out minimal punishment to some of its expendable surrogates. Welcome to the Middle East, the three Obama-Biden administrations of labor to construct, characterized by Iranian hegemony and U.S. impotence. Brace for more aggression against us and our dwindling number of friends, fueled by the Ayatollah's imminent, if not actual, nuclear weapons capability that our government has enabled. This is Frank Afton. Welcome back. We're visiting with the Honorable Robert Charles, a former Assistant Secretary of State, among other things, uh, in his capacity at the State Department, uh, particular relevance to our present topic. He was involved with um, matters involving narcotics and um, international legal matters, uh, helping other countries understand the importance, for example, of uh, securing their borders. And here we find ourselves with the most insecure border. And Bobby, I was just setting up the question to you. Uh, a number of senior FBI, former now executives, uh, have expressed real concern about the presence in large numbers uh, coming across the border now of military-aged men from some hostile nations. Uh, I wanted to get your thoughts on particularly the problem that that could represent if most especially these people believed by observers to be Chinese special operators might once inside this country be able to marry up with the contents of facilities like this uh, biolab that we discovered the Chinese had set up in Ridgely, California, and we think there may be more of across the country. <clears throat> your sense of how serious a problem that represents, Bonnie. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, three or four simple points, Frank. One, people um, not only of our generation, but probably of all generations, uh, would like to imagine that borders are real things, that the dotted line on the sheet of paper is real, uh, and that something like this could not happen. Uh, that we would not have division level uh, numbers of uh, young uh, people coming over this border with the, with the ill intent, perhaps even the organized uh, intent, perhaps even orders to uh, put things together in a way that would that would represent an onslaught to our own security from within. Having said that, you know, if you could imagine a, a cavalry of Trojan horses, I don't know that if you could could put it into you know real terms, I don't know that that would look any different than what we're looking at right now. We see, uh, you know, I, I just was speaking with Tom Holman, formerly of DHS. And uh, he was he was explaining that several very really uh, significant facts. I guess the number two big question is numbers. I mean, you're looking at seven million uh, people being released into the interior, two million getting over the border without any contact whatsoever. And as he points out, those are people that obviously don't want the free lunch, the free meal, the free housing, or anything else. They want to be unfingerprinted. They want to just be here. Uh, and then I come to your third point, or your second point, my third, which is the idea that there are actually Chinese labs and whatnot being set up in this country. That one that was discovered in California with uh, Ebola even being labeled as part of what they were looking at. Uh, and we know, I mean, the most recent pandemic giving us an indication of what could happen. I think it should stir people's hearts to want very much to secure the border and then to want to get an FBI and other uh, law enforcement community members and intelligence community members as legally permissible to sift through the people that are in this country Amen. and to deport those that uh, clearly do not belong here. One of the things that uh, President Trump and I am not I'm not in this campaign. I don't work on campaigns. We have nothing to do with campaigns. But I will say that one of the things that caught my ear was when he said, look, we're not only going to have to seal the border, but we're going to have to start sifting those 
interior who have no right to be here and may have malevolent intent. And, uh, you know, Frank, terror cells exist all over the world. I spent time in 50 countries, had programs in 70 countries. Uh, they're in this hemisphere, too. Hezbollah is in this hemisphere, okay? So uh, the real question, Frank, I think, is how we secure ourselves against uh, the malevolent intent of those here and, and, and against those that are here. And I think we, we're, we're at a moment in time where our uh, believability is being challenged. We, we really want to believe uh, that what is happening is not as serious as what is happening. And yet, you know, the people that protect themselves the best are those that recognize the threats and react to them and then begin to prevent them. As expeditiously as possible. Of and, and just to quote these uh, 10 former G-men, as they call them, uh, they urged the Congress yeah. to ensure that the border must be secured. This is a quote. The border must be secured against these young men. Yeah. And those already here illegally must be identified and removed without delay, yeah. unquote. So I think this is exactly your point and certainly mine, Bobby. Um, this brings me to uh, another question, which is uh, the decision in the Supreme Court uh, last week, I think it was now, um, Amy Comey Barrett uh, providing the deciding vote, I think you might say, um, Trump appointee, yeah. that Texas did not have the authority to protect its border from such an invasion yeah. if the federal government fails to do its duty under the Constitution, which is to protect our states in that kind of eventuality. Um, as I mentioned, you've served in the judicial branch as well as the other two branches of our government. Um, what did you make of this ruling, Bobby, and uh, yeah. where do you think we go from here? Well, I, I was on the Ninth Circuit, and this would be particularly relevant to the Ninth Circuit, even though it related to Texas, uh, because California is going to be a big uh, question mark uh, going forward in terms of what happens on that border. Look, there's a whole area of law called conflicts of laws. And to unpack it as quickly as I can, when the Constitution was put together, uh, there was a Tenth Amendment. And the Tenth Amendment said, in effect, that anything that is not given directly or expressly to the federal government uh, is, is reserved to the states and to the people. Um, and, of course, the Tenth Amendment after the Civil War was sort of eviscerated by the Fourteenth Amendment, which, which focused itself entirely on equal protection and trying to drive down all of the rights that we at the federal level have to the state level. You really have here a classic contest because the Constitution, and this is what the four, it was a 5-4 decision, it should have been at least a 6-3 decision the other way, but what, it, what, the, what the decision, what the dissent pointed out, and, and what is utterly true, is that the federal government has an obligation to protect the United States. That means every one of the United States. And there are textual provisions in the Constitution that make that uh, an obligation of our federal government. National security is one of the, arguably, the top priority of any federal government. So what happens when the federal government lets you down as a governor and as a people of a state or multiple states? And the answer is you obviously have to protect yourself. Um, I think this particular case turned on the border issues and the law and the case law around borders. And the argument was that the, the concertino wire uh, somehow prevented the Border Patrol from getting down and rescuing people in the Rio Grande River. So, you know, ultimately an accommodation could be made. But the other argument on this from the from the state point of view is that they have absolute sovereignty over the protection that you and I have sovereignty over ourselves. States have sovereignty over their people as a people, just as we in the United States of America collectively have a sovereignty. The sovereignties are at war with each other. The federal government is saying we don't have any need to protect you or our policy of letting people in is some way in some way protecting you. That is absolutely untrue. Uh, and so you now have a state and it may be the first of many saying if you will not protect us, we will protect ourselves. And it's a little bit, Frank, like the idea that when you defund the police in your local community, people go out and buy a firearm to protect themselves, okay? At the end of the day, self-protection is not only something codified in state constitutions and in the federal constitution, but in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and in the Magna Carta. So at the end of the day, uh, you know, Texas has a, a real argument that they need to be able to protect their people, and we as a people need to be able to protect ourselves. Sometimes, even against the federal government. Yeah. So does this, uh, we have to wrap in just 30 seconds on this, but uh, does this 
give rise to a constitutional crisis in your judgment? You know, I, I, I'll say this, Frank, it is a clear conflict of laws. And there, there's a whole body of laws called conflict of laws that has to do with when the states have rights over the federal government. But uh, I, I think you could probably slot this into the category of constitutional crisis. Mm -hmm. And frankly, it should have been resolved on different terms. I, I love the Supreme Court. I respect the Supreme Court. Uh, I respect the rule of law. But I think this is one where they got it wrong. Amen. Bobby Charles is in the house. We've got one more segment with him. I hope you'll stay tuned for it. A lot more to cover with one of our great resources here at Securing America. Stay tuned for more on the other side of this very short break. After night in cities across the country, black-garbed assailants clash with police in the streets, smash windows and throw Molotov cocktails in an effort to destroy police stations, federal courthouses, and local businesses, all in the name of anti-fascism. Most Americans are now, sadly, all too aware of the movement known as Antifa. But where did they come from? What do they want? And how do we stop their campaign of violent mayhem? The Center for Security Policy Press is proud to present Unmasking Antifa, Five Perspectives on a Growing Threat, this new book looks at the history, ideology, organization, finances, and strategy of Antifa and provides an in-depth analysis for law enforcement officers, policymakers, and the general public. From street fighting tactics of the Black Bloc to fundraising by prominent left-wing foundations, Unmasking Antifa is the go-to guide to understand this elusive and dangerous threat. Get your copy of Unmasking Antifa, Five Perspectives on a Growing Threat at Amazon.com. We're back, and we're visiting with a man whose um, acumen on matters of public policy in general, and in particular matters of the law, we value greatly here at Securing America. His name is the Honorable Robert Charles, and uh, he spent time, as I've mentioned, uh, among other places, on the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals as a clerk. And Bobby, um, I did want to ask you about um, a circuit court in the District of Columbia. Uh, and some of the machinations there. Um, maybe you could take us back to um, the concerted effort that Barack Obama made during his presidency. Uh, I guess pack the court is uh, a term for it, but certainly to populate it with um, very significant leftist jurists. And we're reaping the whirlwind now, I think, are we not? Yeah. You know, I'll start by saying, Frank, thank you, uh, that in 2018, you'll remember that Justice Roberts, uh, then already the Chief Justice, rebuked President Trump and said that he was wrong to have uh, felt that an Obama judge, that it, it was the fact that a judge had been appointed by uh, President Obama who came down against securing the border in the, in, in the, in the beginning stages of really this, this full discussion about how you protect the border. And, uh, and, and, you know, he was pretty direct and he said, we don't have Obama judges and, and, and Republican judges. We have, we have nonpartisan judges. Well, God bless uh, Justice Roberts for wanting that to be the case. Our constitution is aspirational. That's what we'd like to see happen. But I think what's happened since is we've gone from sort of a, a ranch house roof to an A-frame roof in which you now have judicial conservatives, by which I mean people who look at the text of a statute or the Constitution and conservatively interpose themselves. They simply apply those words to the facts of a case or controversy. And on the other side, you have activist judges who think that their job with life tenure as a district or circuit court judge or Supreme Court justice is to somehow make the world right and where Congress didn't put words into something or the founders didn't put them in, we'll put them in and we'll fix the world. Well, that's judicial activism and that is not what Article 3 had in mind when they formed a judiciary. They did not, they, they have a Congress for that and a president for that. Uh, you're not supposed to make laws as a judge or justice. So now we, we, enter to, we, we come to this moment where the circuit courts have become increasingly political 
politicized, uh, as have the district courts. And, the, and I'll just give you the example of the D.C. Circuit, uh, which is kind of a glaring, flashing, bright red light, uh, kind of a warning sign about what could be happening. We, we need the fair administration of law by nonpartisan judges and justices. We need that in order to preserve the republic. And what the circuit court has done in the last 60 days is to hand down three decisions that were universally all left and all right. And so you had a first decision by a circuit court judge that gave the president, the former president of the United States, no First Amendment rights, no Fourth Amendment rights, uh, no due process rights, just the idea that we were going to slam dunk on the on the question of immunity. Now, immunity by a president after office against for anything that occurred while he was in office is based on the idea of an official act. And the individual issue at risk or at play was whether the January 6th speech was an official act. Well, the DC circuit, so that the, the partisan uh, Obama appointee said, no, you're done. Uh, the circuit court looked at it and a majority Obama- No, no just to be clear, no, you're done, meaning you do not meaning, have meaning, the right to say that that was a presidential act. Meaning that it was not protected by as a as an official act and that you have no immunity from prosecution and that even though none of the 700 people arrested were ever charged with insurrection, you were part of an insurrection. OK, so uh, turning and, and neither and neither was he charged with no, insurrection. Neither was by he. he was no, exactly. So we all know that we all know the facts. This very partisan judge said no immunity. The district that's the district court. The circuit court then said, uh, we're just going to rubber stamp that and uh, Biden judges, no, no, no immunity. And we're going to send it back down to the district court who's partisan. Issue number two, there is something called executive privilege. The president of the United States said, I have the right to determine whether I assert executive privilege over emails and tweets that were on the server. Jack Smith, the federal prosecutor, goes around behind his back, secretly grabs the server that belongs to the high tech companies and in turn says that the president of the United States basically doesn't have any executive privilege rights. That throws 200 years of case law out. The circuit court on a seven to four decision, all Obama and Biden judges just rubber stamp it again. Final one recently, just within the last week, they say that a gag order can be imposed and the circuit court, again, on a purely partisan basis, says a gag order can be imposed upon a presidential candidate who is running for office as a former president. He, he, he can't, he's not allowed to say what I'm about to say to you. Hey, I am being unjustly treated by the Justice Department. I am being persecuted because for political reasons, he's not allowed to say that. He's been barred from saying that because it relates to the yeah. cases and controversies under question. So the bottom line, Frank, is we are politicizing our judiciary and it is a damaging, dangerous course to go for any. I saw it in courts around the world. It is a dangerous course to go for any republic that believes in the fair administration of the rule of law. Yeah, equal justice under the yeah. law specifically. Uh, Bobby, let me turn to one other matter that has been very problematic as well. Um, we had uh, Congressman Barry Loudermilk on the show uh, a week or so ago in which he talked about this stunning development as a former House investigator. I know you yeah. appreciate how stunning this is, that the so-called January 6th committee seemingly either destroyed outright evidence that they had obtained, including depositions, as I understand it, and shipped the contents of what they didn't destroy to the White House for yep. safekeeping. And the Congress is now having a very difficult time getting it back. What's going on there? Yeah, this should be a no-brainer. And what, it, what it's really doing is it's undermining the entire January 6th committee's work. Uh, because it looks now that that was a put-up job. It looks like whatever the facts were around January 6th, that the mission and purpose of that committee was to get Donald Trump. That's what it looks like right. now. And the way that we reach that conclusion, looking at sort of the, the cave, the, the shadows on the cave wall, to, to cite Plato, is we, we look and see what did they do. The day before the gavel was handed to the Republicans, it appears that they either destroyed or hid a hundred uh, crypt, uh, encrypted files that would have been potentially exculpatory of January 6th defendants as well as 
uh, potentially the president of the United States. And now we know, as of just literally this last couple of days, that the effort that 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 they also took interview transcripts and deposition transcripts and gave them to the White House for safekeeping depositions and interviews that had been done by the Congress with congressional resources that belong to the Congress as a party. Therefore, whether they're Republican or Democrat, they're congressional property. They gave them to the White House for safekeeping. Well, then the White House, when when this was discovered, and Congressman Loudermilk said, wait a minute, you, you can't just give away things that belong to Congress to hide them. This is not a shell game, a hide and seek game. We need that back again. The White House gave them redacted documents back. So now they go back and they say, you can't do that. You have to give us back the entire transcript. And the White House has now said, unbelievably, almost like a hostage taking or a, a thief who's decided that they have your goods and they're not going to return them. They've said, well, you can come look at them. But we're not, you personally can come you, look at these. Congressman Loudermilk. Congressman Loudermilk, you can come look at them, but we're not going to give your staff any access. And by the way, we're not going to give them back to you. This is completely outrageous. It's a separation of powers question. It's the constitutional violation. It is a White House intentionally violating the separation of powers and violating the principle of a subpoena being complied with. So, you know, to me, it is an absurdity. We've gotten to a point, Frank, where this White House, again, to confirm or put an exclamation point on it, does not appear to respect the rule of law. They don't appear to respect the, the Supreme Court. They don't appear to respect the idea of nonpartisan circuit and district courts. And they don't seem to even respect the idea that the United States Congress has prerogatives that are given it, given it in the Constitution and they ought to be complied with. Yeah, amen to all of that. And, and Bobby, again, it sounds like a constitutional crisis. I, I think it is yet again, Frank. We we got a bunch of freight trains that are headed for brick walls, and this is what's going on. They are again in a position of essentially challenging the constitutional prerogatives that a Congress has. And God forbid, if uh, if 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 the House were not in the hands of the Republicans, you'd have a one-party state that really was un, un unhinged, unleashed, unable mm -hmm. to be held accountable. Well, and there are those of us who believe that the, the Uniparty is acting in a manner that uh, facilitates that, even though nominally, at least, the Republicans yeah. are in control of the House. But Bobby, I, again, just to put this in a bit of context, kind of my takeaway from all of this is we have a situation in which there's already plenty of reason to be very troubled about this whole January 6th episode. What we've learned from uh, Clay uh, Hestings and, and uh, others in the House is there looks as though there is an entrapment aspect to what was done with FBI assets all over the place, in the crowd, inside the Capitol, no, la no less. Uh, did I say Hestings? I think I mean Higgins, Clay Higgins. Sorry. Let me do that again. Um Let me just put a sort of takeaway together here based on what you've said, Bobby, and what we've learned elsewhere. There already is plenty of reason to be concerned about this whole January 6th saga, uh, not least concerns about whether it was um, sort of uh, a case of entrapment. It was a case of uh, a direct action, if you will. Uh, Congressman Clay Higgins has certainly suggested there were a lot of FBI personnel in the mix, including inside the Capitol, no less. Uh, before the demonstrators got anywhere near it. When you add on top of it how this uh, commission, uh, this uh, committee has conducted itself, it is doubly, doubly troubling. We have to leave it there for the moment, my friend, but we will come back to you on all of this, and I appreciate so much your insights on everything we've discussed. Uh, God bless you. Have a good weekend. And, uh, Always we'll a privilege, Frank. Thank you. We'll be right back with more. Stay tuned.
This is Frank Afney with the Secure Freedom Minute. Iran-controlled jihadists have just killed and injured 30 American troops based in Jordan. This attack is but the latest in the escalating violence engineered by Tehran and carried out by its proxies to provide minimal plausible deniability for the mullahs and their friends and, yes, agents inside the Biden administration. So when President Biden says, we'll hold the perpetrators accountable and respond at a time and manner of our choosing, what he means is we will continue to pretend Iran is not responsible and mete out minimal punishment to some of its expendable surrogates. Welcome to the Middle East, the three Obama-Biden administrations have labored to construct, characterized by Iranian hegemony and U.S. impotence. Brace for more aggression against us and our dwindling number of friends, fueled by the Ayatollah's imminent, if not actual, nuclear weapons capability that our government has enabled. This is Frank Gaffney. We're back, and I am delighted to be able to say this is our weekly installment of the Save the Persecuted Christians feature of Securing America. It uh, is a block that features, among other things, uh, my friend and colleague, Didi Vlogason, the executive uh, director of Save the Persecuted Christians, a team that we've put together to try to do just that. And we do it with the help of wonderful friends and freedom fighters like our special guest for this edition of Securing America. And that would be the wonderful Faith McDonald. Dee, I want to invite you to talk a bit with Faith about um, a big event that's taking place in Washington, D.C. in the course of uh, uh, the week ahead, the International Religious Freedom Roundtable Summit, I guess it's called. Um, Faith, of course, has been one of those who has worked on international religious freedom issues for her entire life, I think it's fair to say, and in particular, um, the uh, legal impetus behind this international religious freedom uh, agenda. And uh, we're so glad, grateful to uh, have both of you with us. Over to you, Didi. Sure, Frank. Uh, next week on Monday through Wednesday, in Washington, D.C. at the Washington Hilton will be uh, um, Ambassador Brownback and Katrina Lantos-Sweat are hosting the sixth annual uh, International Religious Freedom Summit. People from all over the world will be coming to discuss religious freedom uh, as it plays out in the world. And of course, we're watching very closely because we are starting to see that religious persecution that exists out in the world happening here to American Christians, especially white American Christians being othered by our own government. So it will be an interesting conversation. Terrific. <clears throat> I'm sorry. Um, one of the things that we've been touching on on this program is uh, the particular um, accusation that uh, some of those Christians, uh, white Christians, I guess, as well, um, are in fact Christian nationalists, and somehow they pose a threat to our republic. Uh, when I say they, I mean folks like us, I guess. Um, I'd like to hear both your own thoughts on that, uh, Didi, as well as uh, those of Faith McDonald, uh, another proud patriotic American um, who is being defamed in that fashion. Well, you know, the white Christian nationalists is just an, a label being put onto uh, people in America who hold to traditional faith beliefs, whether they be Christian or Jews and even Muslims. And um, this othering that is happening uh, is what happens in other countries where persecution uh, exists. You take this, this group of people, for us, it's white American Christians and our friends, be they black or anything else, who uh, do not hold to the imposition of radical leftist ideologies upon 
uh, you know, Americans. And I think most American Christians are looking like deer in the headlights at what kind of change Barack Obama, the Obama Biden 3.0 is intending to cement in America, this change of, um, of taking a vast majority of Americans and putting them on the outskirts and saying that their voice no longer matters because we've been labeled as racist, hate-filled, uh, Christian nationalists. We can't even put a term to that nebulous uh, mm. narrative. What is a Christian nationalist? I love America. I love Christ. Does that make me somebody to be hated and even persecuted in America? Yeah, I believe so. Well, that's not your belief, of course. That's what the administration seems to be yeah. set on. Faith McDonald, uh, first of all, thank you for being with us and for the great work you've done over your lifetime. Um, what do you make of this phenomenon of uh, Christian nationalism? Is it is it in fact something that uh, is a threat to religious freedom here at home? Well, thanks, Frank, and thanks, Didi. It's wonderful to be with you. Uh, yes, indeed. Um, Exactly what what Didi was saying uh, at th this this idea of Christian nationalism, for me it it it's deja vu all over again. It takes me back to the years working on the persecution of Christians in China. One of the things that I used to do um, to write about and try to defend persecuted Christians in China was to say, doesn't the Chinese government realize that Christians? are the best Chinese citizens they could have. They're the honest people. They're the good people. But instead, they were labeled as the ones who were going against the government because the government was not the country. And we have today a government that is not our country. It's not the United mm -hmm. States of America. And Christians who are patriots and are trying to stand up not only for their faith in Jesus Christ, but for this country, which was founded with the belief that God had allowed America to be founded to be a light to the world. Um, they don't want us to be doing that anymore. Um, and one other thing, when you said the deer in the headlights, too many American Christians don't either don't realize this or they're afraid. They don't want to speak up because they're afraid of what might happen to them. And also there's a very insidious plot behind it, not only coming from our government, but coming from the so-called Christian evangelicals who are on the other side of this and are getting a good paycheck in order to divide the church. Wow. Um, this is a major topic that uh, we're going to want to drill down on a little bit more, uh, Faith, but I, I did want to just ask in this case, um, we've had a marvelous uh, book published uh, not too long ago by our friend Eric Metaxas, man who's very much uh, of a mind with us on the persecution of Christians. He called it the letter to the American church. And part of the thrust of that book was how important it is for Christians to stand up against this kind of um, repressive conduct, uh, whether it's in, in the case of persecution of the traditional kind, as we've seen for so long and so massively overseas, some 360 million Christians are being heavily persecuted, we're told, by our friends at Open Doors, but also faith this situation in which, um, you know, we're watching um, various other efforts made to identify people, other, as Didi says, uh, people as uh, extremists, uh, violent extremists, maybe, or potential domestic terrorists as well. We're going to have to talk about all of that and, and what the International Religious Freedom Roundtable might be doing to focus attention and get corrective action on these matters. Stay tuned. We're back. We are speaking of as the International Religious Freedom summit is getting underway and we are talking with two of the people who i anticipate will be very important forces inside its meetings for the purposes of elevating especially the plight of christians who are being persecuted uh, forget about religious freedom they are being deprived of even their lives um, 
for following Jesus Christ. Dee Dee Logason, our friend and colleague, the executive director of the Save the Persecuted Christians organization. Um, we sponsor a Save the Persecuted Coalition. We feature a Save the Persecuted Christians coalition that focuses on all of these problems. And one of its most important members is our other colleague, Faith McDonald. And ladies, would you just talk a little bit about um, the agenda of our team at the International Religious Freedom Summit? At the International Religious Freedom Summit, Frank, we will be bringing uh, Nigerians from Joe's Plateau. And this is the area where uh, your viewers may remember uh, Christmas Eve came under attack and hundreds of Christian uh, subsistence fam families were murdered in their beds, uh, locked into their homes, burned to death, children, everyone just slaughtered over Christmas. We have a number of people coming from Plateau, Nigeria to, um, you know, to tell their stories and what happened. We have a uh, Biden administration, Secretary Blinken, who has given Nigeria a pass on the religious violence that's happening there, uh, jihadists against Christians. And Nigeria is an interesting case because it is a democracy, and yet it is what we are starting to experience here, a uniparty with a mainstream media that's um, all in with the regime in place, and the regime does nothing to counter the violence done to the Christians. But if you touch the hair on the head of a Muslim in, in Nigeria, you're in trouble. We've been warning all along that if these things that are happening in these countries, uh, Nigeria, Armenia, and China will be our focus over the next week, that, um, that what's happening there is coming here. And so as we're going through the International Religious Freedom Summit, we are looking at how religious freedom, the issue of it, is being co-opted by other groups to actually be used as a sledgehammer against those who are being persecuted. And Faith can speak very strongly to this. Sure. Yeah, that's, that's a really important point. Um, you know, with, with three decades of working on Christian persecution, I saw the change happening as, as we began to explore the fact that Christians are persecuted around the world and the horrific persecution that was going on. The first thing that the persecutors did was to deny it. So we would have the denial and then when the facts came out and they could no longer deny it, then there would be excuses. And the, the excuses ranged from, well, it's actually a clash between Christians and Muslims. But when a Christian's lying in their bed and gets slaughtered, that ain't much of a clash. That's just downright murder. Um, and finally, they've turned it around to being uh, the victims. So the victimizers have become the victims, and we've seen that grow in the International Religious Freedom Roundtable and the, the summit. Um, and I always say, you know, I have to practice my poker face before I get there, but I don't want to have a poker face anymore. I want to have a face that tells exactly what I think. Yeah. I, I think you're speaking of, among other things, the presence and influence of uh, Muslim Brotherhood forces in these meetings. And it's been very troubling to me to see that operating, uh, especially in the context of the kind of attacks on Jews that uh, these Sharia supremacists have been engaged in, including the Muslim Brotherhood's Palestinian franchise, Hamas. Um, I, I did want to just quickly touch on the two other topics. Um, we've done a little bit here on Nigeria, both uh, with you in the past, Edie, as well as today. But uh, just a word or two on Armenia, which, as I understand it, the Turks are saying they intend to do to it what they recently did to Nagorno-Karabakh, uh, as well as, uh, in Faith, maybe you could speak to this issue, um, what's happening to Christians in China, uh, in part, it appears, as a result of the Pope's own efforts uh, to um, placate or appease or at least do business with the Chinese Communist Party. So do you yeah, so uh, maybe start? In, in Armenia, Nagorno-Karabakh, which was a little uh, territory that was um, straddling both uh, Azerbaijan and Armenia, 
a, a conclave caught up in the middle of it. After an eight-month blockade, uh, Nagorno-Karabakh fell to Azerbaijan without the world even sniffling about it. This is one of the uh, world's most ancient Christian communities uh, since 400 AD, and it is now gone. They want to reestablish the Belt and Road uh, right through Armenia. And so all of those, Turkey and Azerbaijan and others, are moving to even take Armenia and see it gone. We're standing against this. Uh, we have to preserve the Christian communities that still exist in that area of the world. Amen. And to punish the persecutors. I mean, this is yes. part of what we exist to do at Save the Persecuted Christians is argue that they must be held accountable. So Faith, talk a little bit about the Chinese Communist Party and its role in Christian persecution, yes. among others. Um, uh, first, I would just say, too, about uh, 20 years ago, I was in Yerevan, Armenia, and met some Christians who had fled from Nagorno-Karabakh. And they told terrible things about what, what happened to the Christians there. So to see this happen again um, was just horrific. And to see it actually completed this time. So as you say, we have to punish them. And, and going on to China, um, we have seen decades and decades of persecution of Christians. And, and the, the persecution has never stopped. There were times when they would... Uh, we would hear from the State Department, well, you know, things have changed and the Chinese are much more uh, allowing Christians. Um, but again, if, even if that were true, we're seeing the crash uh, crackdown on them now. And uh, because of what the Pope has done, we're seeing even more. And we're likely, I fear, to see yet more in the future. I hope all of this will be amply explained and uh, illuminated at the International Religious Freedom Summit. Thank you for sharing some insights into what we're working on. Come back to us soon if you would. We'll be right back. Sorry. Until then, uh, we look forward to our segment with you guys uh, next week, Didi, and thank you for your time today. Thank you to the rest of you for being with us today as well. Come back to us next time, and then until then. Go forth and multiply.